and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name's Anne Preetam and I'm a partner in the team and with me today is Michelle Aubertin, one of our associates. In this month's podcast, we're going to consider how recent events have cast a spotlight on race discrimination and how this relates to UK employment law and practice. The tragic death of George Floyd on 25th May 2020 sparked global protests and debates across the world, highlighting the ongoing need to tackle race discrimination in the workplace. We're going to consider an employer's legal obligations to protect their staff from race discrimination and, perhaps more importantly, practical steps they can take to achieve this. Michelle, could you please explain how race discrimination is defined under English law? Yes, the governing legislation which covers all types of discrimination is the Equality Act 2010. Race is one of the protected characteristics under the Act and the definition of race includes colour, nationality and ethnic or national origins. The definition of race does not include immigration status or socio-economic circumstances. Thanks Michelle. It's worth remembering as well that race was one of the very first protected characteristics, as we now call them, to get that protection in law. And that dates back to the first Race Relations Act in 1965. These days, who exactly is protected from unlawful race discrimination? Well, the Act applies to almost all categories of individuals. As well as prohibiting discrimination in the provision of goods and services, for example, shops and restaurants, in the employment sphere that we are concerned with here, the Act protects employees, job applicants, trainees, contract or agency workers, office holders, including company directors, members of an LLP, traditional partners, employee shareholders, and even former employees. It can also apply to the self-employed if their contract obliges them to perform the work personally and they cannot subcontract the work or employ their own staff to do it. The Act touches all areas of employment, including recruitment, promotion, discussions about pay, the provision of benefits, policies and procedures, dismissal and post-employment matters. Yes, and there are four main types of race discrimination in the Equality Act. The first is direct race discrimination, which occurs where one person treats another person less favourably than they treat or would treat others, and that person does so because of race. It's worth bearing in mind that any mistreatment because of race is prohibited. Usually, a claimant must compare themselves against another person without their protected characteristic and show how they are treated differently. That's true for race discrimination too, but you don't actually have to be a member of the racial group being mistreated to suffer discrimination, in particular harassment. As with most discrimination claims, a comparator may be hypothetical rather than real. So the comparator must be someone who is the same as the claimant in all material respects, but is not of their race. Race discrimination principles can lead sometimes to surprising results. An example is the case of Amnesty International and Ahmed. In that case, the charity declined to promote an employee to the position of Sudan researcher because the individual was of northern Sudanese ethnic origin. Amnesty was concerned that as an ethnic northern Sudanese person, if she were appointed, she could be in personal danger, and her appointment could also compromise the organization's perceived impartiality in relation to the conflict in Sudan. However, the Employment Appeal Tribunal agreed with the Employment Tribunal that this was still an act of race discrimination. She didn't get the promotion because of race, regardless of the employer's benign motive for its actions. It's a classic example of how motive is irrelevant in direct discrimination claims. If race or sex or sexual orientation and so forth is the reason for mistreatment, 
good intentions and motives just don't matter and are not a defence to direct discrimination. The second type of discrimination is indirect discrimination. In a race discrimination context, this occurs when someone applies a provision, criterion or practice, referred to as a PCP, to a group of people, but the PCP puts an individual of a particular race at a disadvantage compared with others who do not share their race. Unlike with direct discrimination, indirect discrimination does not involve treating people differently. An example of indirect racial discrimination would be a policy of insisting that all employees speak fluent French. People from states or ethnic origins where French is not spoken are of course at a disadvantage if they want the work. However, an employer can defend an allegation of indirect race discrimination if they can show their PCP is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. For example, if the work involves translating from English to French, the PCP I just mentioned would be lawful. What's crucial from a business perspective is to be able to show that the PCP really is justifiable. Often it will help to have a paper trail establishing this, such as business plans, job descriptions, recruitment briefs, and so on. That's right, Michelle. And the third type of discrimination in the Equality Act 2010 is victimisation. Victimisation in the context of race occurs when a person does a so-called protected act, such as complaining about race discrimination or supporting a colleague who does, and their employer retaliates by subjecting that individual to a detriment, perhaps by ostracising them, refusing them promotion, keeping their pay down, or even dismissing them. However, an employer has a defence if the alleged victimisation was not motivated consciously subconsciously or unconsciously by the fact that the employee had previously done a protected act. In other words, a claimant has to prove that there has been a causal link between the protected act and the mistreatment. The easiest way for a company to avoid victimisation claims is to ensure that all discrimination complaints are dealt with confidentially and shared only on a need-to-know basis. What a manager does not know cannot be a reason for his or her decision-making. Thanks, Anne. The fourth type of discrimination is harassment. Racial harassment involves subjecting an individual to conduct which is unwanted, is related to race, and the conduct has the purpose or effect of violating the victim's dignity or creating an environment that is intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive to the victim. Could comments that aren't directly aimed at an individual still constitute racial harassment? Yes, they certainly could. And in the case of Morgan Halls of Gloucester, the tribunal held that a series of inappropriate comments about race by blue-collar workers, not necessarily directed at the claimant, amounted to harassment. Although the claimant was not the subject of the racist abuse, he felt he could not continue to work in such a racist environment and so resigned and claimed constructive dismissal. Harassment can also include so-called workplace banter that has crossed the line. In Ruder and Tei Limited, the tribunal held that Mr. Ruder, who was originally from Poland, had been harassed on the grounds of race by a colleague calling him Borat, and that the use of the nickname created a degrading and humiliating working environment for him. This was despite the fact that Mr. Ruder had not raised any complaint when the nickname was used, and he also even seemed to go along with the joke, in inverted commas, by saying some of Borat's catchphrases in response. The nickname also constituted direct race discrimination. The judgment explained that someone who had all the characteristics of Mr. Ruder, but was neither from Poland nor perceived to be of Eastern European origin, would not have had that nickname applied to him. Getting it wrong can be a very expensive mistake. In November 2018, an NHS trust in London was ordered to pay £1 million of damages to a former employee after a tribunal found that he was unfairly dismissed and faced unconscious bias. Once again, proving that conscious motive isn't the point, bias, even in conscious, can be a discriminatory reason for poor treatment. 
Mr Hastings was involved in a fight. The tribunal found that the trust had sacked him after an investigation that ignored his allegations that the fight had begun when he was subjected to racist abuse and that he was treated as an aggressor in the fight because of preconceptions of him as a black male, even though there was CCTV footage that disproved this. In the same month, Google reportedly settled a claim of race discrimination by one of its contractors after he claimed he was repeatedly racially profiled and harassed when he worked undercover, measuring Wi-Fi signal strength. Google denied wrongdoing, but is said to have agreed to pay the individual £4,000 to settle his claim. Thanks, Em. It's also worth mentioning there are other types of discrimination too, such as associative discrimination. That could arise as an issue if a non-black employee complains they are being treated badly because perhaps they worship at a church with a predominantly black congregation or socialise with a predominantly black crowd. These are all fascinating areas of the law, but unfortunately we do not have time to cover them today, and they are less common complaints. Of course, an organisation can make decisions, but often it's an employee's actions that end up with an employer defending claims. This is because employers are vicariously liable for any acts of race discrimination committed by their employees against other employees in the course of employment. Yes, in limited circumstances, an employer may be able to avoid liability if the employer can successfully argue that it's taken all reasonable steps to prevent the discrimination occurring. That would include training staff and having comprehensive policies. Employers might also say that an incident didn't occur in the course of employment, such as harassment at a social gathering, remember them, in a pub or something like that. However, in the vast majority of cases, employers will remain liable for all their employees' actions. That's why tone from the top is so important. Employees must know the boundaries and must know that if they step over the line, they will be disciplined. Encouragingly, more and more employers are taking steps to protect their workforce from race discrimination and also to foster much greater diversity in workplaces. There is probably higher awareness than ever before of the importance of firm culture in nurturing positive behavioural changes. The Black Lives Matter movement has sparked an incredible amount of positive responses from companies and organisations across the world. There's a growing awareness of the need to understand the black and non-white life experience. However, with this, there are many employers that have come under scrutiny for their comments and less than tolerant approach to the movement. That's correct, Michelle. Many consumers have demanded that brands and organisations take real action on racial inequality, which includes examining their workplace policies, rather than just posting platitudes across social media. The likes of Disney, Facebook and Nike are among hundreds of businesses that have pledged donations to black organisations, but there are others who have not responded appropriately. Public statements of support for Black Lives Matter sit uncomfortably with company reports or websites showing boards which are pale and, frankly, sometimes male and stale too, and lamentable employee diversity. Sometimes companies even seem to court trouble. For example, the founder of CrossFit came under severe scrutiny for his response to the Black Lives Matter movement when he wrote a controversial tweet about George Floyd, comparing his killing and the subsequent uprising of BLM movement to the coronavirus. High-level trainers, athletes and other brands have resigned from partnerships with the brand and vowed to disaffiliate themselves from CrossFit. The BLM movement has also prompted many employees from minority ethnic groups to speak out against racial discrimination in the workplace. Sensible employers on the receiving end of complaints should take a close look at their written policies and day-to-day practices. Are they up to date? Could they be perpetuating the problem of racial inequality and lack of opportunity? It's probably true to say that the basic legal protections against race discrimination are generally understood by most employers, but pervasive and systemic discrimination is much harder to recognise, let alone eliminate. 
As you mentioned, it is important for employers to actively participate in supporting their ethnic minority employees. A statement by senior management simply addressing the Black Lives Matter movement is not enough. Structural racism, by its very nature, requires a conscious, ongoing effort to dismantle it. That's right. Employers should not lose momentum when they're considering next steps. The BLM movement and the ripples of change it has prompted will have a direct impact on recruitment and retention, as well as brand profile, consumer attitudes and so forth for some time to come. Many would say that there has been a permanent step change. Michelle, we've mentioned a few practical pointers along the way in our discussion, but perhaps you could round up for our listeners what best practice looks like for employers in this context. Well, it's important that employers have a policy addressing all types of discrimination within the workplace and that the policy is effectively communicated to all employees. Not only that, it is essential to have detailed procedures in place for dealing with any complaints of racism and to take these complaints seriously. These procedures should be regularly reviewed and clearly articulated to staff through notices, virtual notice boards, handbooks and regular training. Training programmes could focus on tackling microaggressions, unconscious bias and racism. Secondly, employers should allow employees to express their grievances, experiences and opinions in a safe environment. The Business in the Community Race at Work survey, conducted in 2015, found that the vast majority of respondents found topics like gender and sexuality easier to discuss than race. Discussions on race discrimination, however, should not be shied away from, and employers may find that they are best educated by listening to the views of their employees themselves. Further to this, employers should listen and encourage staff feedback on their company policy and procedures, and have visible and accessible support networks for ethnic minority employees. Carrying out employee surveys and sharing the results with the workforce can have a powerful impact. Action should come from the top down, and companies and senior management should ensure that they are practicing what they are preaching in terms of equality and diversity. This could include appointing an executive sponsor to provide leadership and be an advocate on racism issues. Employers can also promote and partake in initiatives such as the Race at Work Charter, which invites organisations to sign the charter and commit to a number of actions, including capturing ethnicity data, commitments at board level, mentoring and reverse mentoring. Employers should also keep abreast of other initiatives, such as the CBI's Change the Race Ratio campaign, to increase racial and ethnic participation on boards and in senior leadership positions. Yes, and employers, particularly larger employers, also catch ethnicity data and publish their progress. Figures released by the Office of National Statistics last year revealed that white employees earn, on average, 3.8% more than their black colleagues. In October 2018, the government consulted on introducing ethnicity pay gap reporting for companies with over 250 employees. In January 2020, the Equal Pay Bill had its first reading in the House of Lords with the second reading on 13th November. Employers, particularly larger organisations, may wish to consider implementing voluntary ethnicity pay gap reporting now instead of waiting to see if it will become mandatory in the future. Law firms certainly aren't paragons of virtue in this area. Last week's Law Society Gazette carried a headline that white solicitors earn a third more than their BAME colleagues across the profession. So we all really need to clean up our act. Thanks, Anne. We hope you have found this guidance helpful as we've seen a marked uptick in the awareness of racial issues in the workplace. We are always on hand to help our clients with policy drafting, management of grievances and disputes, training and awareness raising. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you to all of you for listening. Just a reminder that you can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. 